And with that, your main speaker, Mel. Yeah, I li liked what you were saying, Kelly. You could have gone on another five minutes. <laughs> well, gee, I'm just having a great time here at this, uh, what is this? It's, it's in Minneapolis, isn't it? <laughs> and, uh, the, uh, this is my fourth international convention. I wasn't fortunate enough to attend a lot of the others. I would have liked to. Uh, my youngest son was born while the Toronto convention was going on, and I've held it against him ever since. <laughs> and... Uh, but, uh, well, uh, I didn't realize when I came here that I was supposed to talk for about an hour, that that was part of the deal. I thought I was just supposed to sit on a panel and ask a few questions. But I'm happy to do that. And uh, I guess I'd start out by giving a little limerick I wrote that kind of sums up my life or my drinking career. And I came from Nebraska, and so I had a lot of fear. And this limerick is, A fearful young man from Nebraska drank amounts that would surely aghast you. He'd take any old slop and drink till he'd drop and finally fell on his aska. <laughs> so. But uh, my sobriety date is April 15, 1950. And I tell people, though, that I have 50 years of alcohol sobriety and 39 years of cigarette sobriety and 10 minutes of emotional sobriety. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, I live in, I've lived in Toledo, Ohio for 28 years, and before that for 19 years in Jackson, Michigan. And, uh, oh, great. <laughs> and uh, I'm a retiree now. I was in public relations for over 30 years, which was very fortunate, or I might have had to work for a living. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, I now write uh, books and articles for Hazelden and also for the local newspaper in Toledo, The Blade. And I've been kind of a freelancer for them uh, in the last 12 years, maybe. And sometimes it gets kind of <coughs> icky writing newspaper articles. Uh, they ask me to do things for special tabs. Last year they had a tab on uh, the funeral business. And they, they wanted me to come up with an idea for an article, and so I wrote one about all the women who are getting in the business. You know, 30, 40 years ago, all of the funeral directors were males. And now, 50% of the people going into the mortuary school are female. And I've always said, well, it's all right to have a female funeral director if you should leave your shorts on. But, uh, <laughs> but then I, I interviewed six women in Toledo who are in the funeral business, and it left me very, very depressed because I realized those are probably only the, six the only six women in Toledo who want my body. <laughs> they, uh, so... Uh, well, you know, if, if anybody asks you what you've learned o over all these years in, in AA, and I think if I were going to tell anybody anything to remember and, and keep on your uh, right uh, in front of you all the time is don't drink even if your posterior falls off. <laughs> and you've heard that at meetings phrased a little bit differently. But boy, this is something to remember. And as I look back over my years in AA, I can see many times where I was disappointed and depressed and, and uh, sometimes would go to meetings and wonder why nobody had anything that inspired me and all of that, but I just kept going. But that one thing is, no matter what happens, don't ever take a drink. And that's the one thing we know. 
And this keeps coming up all the time. A few weeks ago, there was a television program on 2020, I think, and there were some people there talking about problem drinkers going back to drinking, and uh, some guy that even claimed to have been an alcoholic, and he sat there and drank, took a drink right in front of the, uh, you know, uh, as part of the show. And by gosh, we just, if you want to believe that stuff, okay. But I just tell anybody if they've ever had a problem with drinking and if they can answer those 12 questions in that little booklet, you know, uh, are, are you, is AA for you? There's 12 questions in there. And if you can answer those questions honestly and answer yes, you know, to those questions, then I think you belong in this fellowship and it's just very fatal almost to go back and try to take a drink. That's the way I feel about it. You know, funny thing about AA, we don't have any definition of alcoholism. And I've been trying to come up with a definition for years, and uh, maybe one of these days I'll have it, and I'll announce it when I do. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, those 12 questions kind of do it. And uh, it's just something, you know, it's like that Supreme Court justice said about pornography. He couldn't define it, but he knows it when he sees it. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's with alcoholism, too. Sometimes I'll see a person who <clears throat> one or two drinks will suddenly change his personality maybe very withdrawn or something. And then suddenly, two, two drinks, and he's the life of the party. Uh-oh, I think there's a there's a apprentice alcoholic there or something like that. It's just, you know, when alcohol does, we heard Clancy speak last night, and uh, he said that alcohol does something for us it doesn't do for other people. And I believe that. I took got drunk for about the first time when I was 13 or 14, got into some of my dad's wine, and I know that that one experience was enough that it just put something back there in the old computer, and I was destined to go on until I got here to AA. And that was in 1939, and so I had another 11 years of troubles. Didn't become an alcoholic right away. I mean, a knockdown, drag-out drunk. But every time there was a chance to drink, I did. And uh, there, there were a lot, of ex a lot of experiences, even in the early 1940s, that should have told me, if I'd known that I had a problem with drinking. Uh, I remember I had left school and was going out to catch, I caught a ride out to California from Salt Lake City. The guy I caught a ride with, I'm sure he was an alcoholic, and he had a bottle in his glove compartment. I was 16 years old then, and I, he gave me a drink, and then he gave me a couple more, and then he took the bottle away from me, and he said, kid, you're one of those people who shouldn't drink. And of course, I think he was one of those too, and, and uh, I think he wanted to defend his supply. I think <laughs> he, he recognized that I would probably drink up the whole bottle by the time we got to Reno. And in fact, by the time we got to Reno, the guy was almost uh, unable to drive. I probably uh, was, uh, took my life in my hands getting a ride with that guy. But um, anyway, it, it went on. I was in the Navy for three and a half years in the war. And by 1947, I was getting shut off in bars at times. These were some of the things that happened. There were some incidents in the Navy that were bad, but uh, I left the Navy with a good conduct medal because not, nothing got on the record. And I've been in veterans organiz uh, veterans organization the last 15 or 20 years talking about World War II and some of the guys I served with on my ship, and uh, they've forgotten what kind of a guy I was, and so I've kind of emerged as a sort of a hero of the war. But I have to say that if everybody in the armed services had performed at my level of competence during World War II, Hitler would have wound up in the White House. <laughs> so I have to be honest about that. 
And uh, even though I got a, a good, good conduct medal from the Navy, I was in the Army for seven months in 1949 and got kicked out with an undesirable discharge. And I was rolled that very, even, that very night in New Brunswick, New Jersey, woke up on a lawn on the edge of town, and my belt and tie were gone, and my money and my railroad ticket, and even my undesirable discharge. There's, I had to, when I got back home, I had to write to Washington to prove I'd been kicked out of the Army. And uh, I got that upgraded to a general discharge some 16 years later. I was going to run for a political office in the town where I lived. I never did, but I wanted the paper record kind of straightened out. And they sent me a copy of uh, what had happened when I was in the service, and it, it just embarrassed me terribly to read that. Uh, one time I was in this service club. I'd gone in there and passed out. And uh, there was, it was a service club for all these soldiers and their wives and everything were around. And by God, it, suddenly an MP was shaking me, and he said somebody had urinated in a chair across the room. And uh, I didn't remember anything like that, but somebody had. I could see that. And so that was one of the incidents. And they, they don't like that in the service. They, uh, it just doesn't conform to their way of doing things. I'm happy to say that that hasn't happened since I got sober in AA. <laughs> And uh, a couple times I've walked into the ladies' room by mistake, and maybe once or twice by intention, <laughs> but, uh, but never, never anything that, that way. Well, I've just left the Grapevine meeting over in uh, Hilton there, and uh, I've written articles for the Grapevine since 1955, and I told them I'd wanted to be a writer, and that first time I got an article published in the Grapevine in 1955, that was almost an orgasmic experience to see your work in, work in print, you know. And uh, we were talking about the history of, uh, that comes up a lot, the history of AA. And somehow that interested me right from the beginning. I went to my first meeting in Ventura, California in 1948. Now I had 18 months of road testing until I finally got sober. But the second AA member I met was one of the first 2,000 people from Akron and then I met his son-in-law a few minutes later, and he was one of the first 200 members from Akron. And right away I got interested, you know, in, in this. And of course, I, I had to get interested in sobriety, finally, before it worked. But, um, but that, those things just kind of clicked with me, how this fellowship got started, and I heard them talking. For example, they talked about Bill Dotson, and he was Alcoholics Anonymous number three. And uh, they called him the guinea pig. Well... Finally, after I got sober, and two years later, uh, after I finally took my last drink, I went down to Akron in November of 1952, and I spent the day with Bill. Now, I'd heard him speak once before, uh, the, uh, the year before, and called him up, and by gosh, he was very generous, and we drove all over Akron. I don't think Bill drove. I'd heard later that he didn't even ever drove a car, that he just took the bus and so on. But uh, we drove around Akron, and and he showed me where they had the famous soapbox derbies and where they made the Zeppelin dirigibles, you know, Goodyear things. And we went, then we went up to St. Thomas Hospital. And uh, the Sister Ignatia was no longer there. There was a Sister Merced that was running it. And, and I talked with her for quite a while. And then I drove out and saw where the gatehouse was. And, of course, that was 1952. I set the pattern for all that Founders Day that they're having now in Akron. <laughs> Because now 10,000 people come in there and do the same thing that I did in 1952. I should have copyrighted that and collected a, a royalty. <clears throat> but I even located Dr. Bob's home. And uh, 
So ever since then, why Akron to me has kind of been like Mecca, you know. I have strong feelings about Akron. It's a beautiful city in many places, you know. It sits on a, a cluster of hills there in northeast Ohio. And I even saw some symbolism there. Bill Wilson, when the first time I heard him talk in 1951 in Detroit, he said that Akron means city set on a hill. And that has a kind of a spiritual significance. And in the Emmett Fox writings, which I love, he always said that whenever you read in the Bible about, I will look unto the hills, that means you'll look unto, unto God's uh, spiritual experience for your health. So that's kind of symbolic of AA. It's even in Summit County. You know, it's that high place. And I was in Wheeling, West Virginia last week, and that uh, West Virginia is calling the, call, uh, they call themselves the Mountain State. So I, I had something to, there. And I don't know whether they appreciated that or not. But uh, anyway, I, I, I just like that symbolism. For example, Bill called uh, Dr. Bob the Rock of AA when, in his obituary uh, edition of the... And then that place where they met, St Stone, Stan Hewitt, it's called, it means stone is found here. That's what it means in Welsh. It's a big mansion there in uh, Akron, 55 rooms. It had belonged to the Cyberling family for 40 years, but ever since 1957, it's belonged to the city, I guess, and you can go there and tour the place. And when we toured it, my wife and I toured it a few years ago, we really enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, there was an elderly woman living in the gatehouse. I guess she just passed away at uh, age 106 or something like that. But she was the, she was the sister-in-law of Henrietta Cyberling, the woman who had introduced Bill and Bob. Uh, well, uh, Anyway, I had that interest in history, and that just went on and went on, and, and I started writing, and I was, uh, got married, and, and uh, oh, we were talking this morning uh, at the grapevine, you know, I was telling everybody about how Bill, uh, the grapevine published all of his articles over the years, about a hundred articles, and they're all available in a book called The Language of the Heart. And uh, I, I hung on to everything Bill wrote right from the very start. Even in 1950, I just got out of a bug house in Nebraska. I spent seven weeks in this bug house. And I was broke. I had a house-to-house -house selling job. And uh, it just lived from hand to mouth. And I, I would have loved going to that first international convention in Cleveland. I remember Bill writing about it and how they got 3,000 people there or something like that. And then five years later, 7,000 people but all of the stuff in AA that is important to us, probably that came from Bill, you can find it in that book. It's a, just a great book about how, it, what AA, how its response should be on certain things. And the one that stands out in memory for me was in 1963 when AA came under attack in a national magazine. Harper's Magazine published a cover story called AA, Cult or Cure. And of course, when anybody has a title like that, they're not going to say cure, you know. And it was a, a devastating article and said AA had lost its effectiveness, it had become a cult and everything like that. And AAs all over the country were furious and wrote to the magazine. Nobody in AA ever read Harper's before. I hadn't. But, uh, <coughs> but uh, we all, we all uh, uh, sent letters and everybody went to Bill and wanted him to frame a response. And he didn't. He just uh, had an article in the grapevine, I think it was in April. Uh, the critical article had come out in February. And this April article, 
he had a, uh, it was called, Our Critics Can Be Our Benefactors. And the point of that article was that when somebody criticizes you like this, you just make it worse when you try to respond. You know, it's like beating your wife sort of a thing. And, uh, <laughs> uh, well, now, I didn't mean it that way. I've, uh, <laughs> but it's, um, it, it, if you just, if you try to, try to answer back, you just keep it, a, he, and he said unreasonable people are stimulated all the more by op opposition. <clears throat> and I've always tried to remember that, and I just think it's, it's great uh, advice for anybody. And that's in this book, The Language of the Heart, what, what happened. Also in this book, there's about his turning down a, a doctorate from Yale, and he didn't want anybody in the fellowship to know about that. Yale University wanted to give him a doctorate. And his letter responding to them, where he turns down the, uh, the, the offer, it's just magnificent. It just, uh, the, the trustees, the people there at Yale, you know, they said after they got his letter, they felt all the more that he should have received it. And then they wanted him on the cover of Time magazine, even with his head turned away. And he, he said, he referred to it as they wanted to show my bald spot. <laughs> and, uh, but he didn't do that. Well, that's all in there. And, and I've a kind of, uh, I think it's great that we have all of that writing to kind of guide us as we go along. Because we can get in an awful lot of trouble, I have no doubt about that. That one of the problems with AA is that there are too many people in it, just like me. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, but um, as I look back, they, that everything that has happened that's r real good in my life has been a result of AA. There's just no question about it. I wound up back in Nebraska after getting kicked out of the army, and I spent a bad winter with my mother and stepdad. And as I looked back on my drinking, I realized that for about seven years, I'd been either dependent or destitute. I spent sometimes a, a little bit of time as a vagrant. That was the old term for a homeless person. Uh, back then, why, if you're a vagrant, they put you in jail. Now they get you on an assistance program. But that wasn't the, that wasn't the story then. It was real bad. And uh, it was all, the, all that first drink that was doing it, that uh, I could not control alcohol and that was wrecking my life. And of course, all my other personal defects were there, but they're still there in one form or another, I'm sure. But when you amplify them with alcohol, when you intensify them with drinking, why it just becomes devastating. And some terrible things happen to people, you know, when they're alcoholics and take that first drink. We've seen them in AA. We've, we've had plenty of examples of people. Uh, I can learn by the experience of others. Uh, I, I tell people I'm not a mouse. Uh, I, I put some mouse traps out one time. We had some mice, and, and I noticed there were two mouse traps and two mice there. Well, they probably didn't get caught at the same time, and yet that other mouse came along and saw that one mouse in the trap and went ahead and did it himself. Well, if we're smart, we won't be like the mice. If we see somebody else get in the trap, we'll try to stay out of it. There were, I moved out to Michigan in September of 1950, and I've lived out there ever since in Michigan and Ohio. Uh, I'll take a line from Searcy. He told me that uh, both states claim me. Uh, Michigan claims I'm from Ohio, and Ohio claims I'm from Michigan. Uh, <laughs> but I got out to Pontiac, Michigan. I met, uh, got in the AA group. I'd come back to AA in that when I was in that state hospital. That's where I got an AA. And I, I take the date of going into state hospital as my sobriety date. April 15, 1950, but I spent seven weeks in the state hospital, 
and it's on a hill overlooking my hometown. And I always remembered that when I was a kid, you know, sometimes we'd ride our bikes out there and hoot at the nuts and stuff like that. And here I was in 1950, and I'm, in, I'm 24 years old, and I'm there myself. But then my life began to change as a result of staying sober and being an AA. And I made that the priority. That was the number one thing, put it above everything else. And then gradually, over the years, I've been able to solve most of my problems as they come along and deal with life. It hasn't ever turned out exactly. The, my plans have never worked exactly the way I want them to work out but sometimes much better, you know. That, and I think this is God's guidance in our lives. I, I believe in something called synchronicity, that when people are thinking the right way and, and doing the right, trying to do the right thing, why there's a guidance, a higher power, whatever you want to call this, and it works in our lives. And I think that was true of how AA was started. Poor old Bill Wilson went out to Akron, you know, to make a buck. Uh, I really studied that situation, too. I even talked, uh, interviewed the man who had eventually headed the company that he was trying to take over. The bill was, was trying to take over in 1935. And he wanted to make some money. Uh, he had been living off his wife for years. She was working in a department store. And that was his goal, was to get back on his feet. Well, what the hell's wrong with that? We all want to make some money, don't we? I mean, that was a very legitimate thing that he was pursuing. But I feel that there was something better that he needed to do, and that's what he did when he went out there and met Dr. Bob. And uh, then eventually the two of them started AA. It was then part of the Oxford group. And that was a spiritual fellowship. I also uh, learned a lot about the Oxford group as time went on. And one of the major things I learned was that there'd been a lot of Oxford group activity out there in Akron before Bill got out there. You know, Henrietta Cyberling, the woman that brought them together. Just a few weeks before uh, Bill got out there, uh, Dr. Bob, the poor guy had been going to these Oxford group meetings for two and a half years. And these, in turn, had been started or triggered by the fact that one of the Firestone heirs had a drinking problem, and Harvey Firestone had sponsored a big group, a big meeting there in 1933, and that's how all these people got organized together. And, but poor old Dr. Bob, two and a half years, you know, trying to stay sober, and uh, just about three weeks before Bill got out there, he finally admitted to those people that he was an alcoholic. And they had been trying to get that kind of an admission out of him. He had been going to these meetings and probably breathing all over him, and, uh, but uh, apparently clamming up about what his real problem was. And so he admitted this to Henrietta Cyberlin in the group. And so when Bill makes this call, she's stunned. She's just amazed that, that this happens this way. She called it manna from heaven. So she introduced him. And, uh, Dr. Bob had only gone over with, to talk to Bill for 15 minutes, but he talked for five hours. And then he had to have one more drunk. You know, that's in his story in the big book. And then, then uh, he came back and Bill tapered him off, and he was supposed to do some surgery, Dr. Bob. And his practice had been very bad. You know, uh, word had gotten around about his drinking. And uh, he, do, he was a specialist by this time. He was a proctologist. And that's... That's a fellow that works on a part of the body that gets very little sunshine. <laughs> and he was, um, so he had to do this surgery, and uh, here, here he was still hung over, and Bill gave him this beer to taper him off, and that was his last drink. That was June 10th, 1935, he said in his story. And then, then he left, and, and Bill, writing about it, Bill said, the patient lived. Well, actually, it was probably just a hemorrhoid operation. 
uh, probably not in real danger, but that was the turning point for Dr. Bob, and he got sober, and, and you know, the two of them working together started this fellowship. And that's, uh, but I was, I started to say that I've, I've always been able to learn a little bit by the experience of others. And before I forget it, I want to tell, there were three fellows that I remember, and I wouldn't tell their names or anything like that, but I remember their experience. They were good members of AA, and things went wrong for them. And uh, one of them was a fellow who was a stalwart of AA when I got out to Pontiac. He was five years sober. Well, I moved away, and, and I'd go back there to visit my aunt and uncle, and I stopped to see him one Saturday night about an hour before the big meeting over there, and he explained to me that he was no longer going to meetings. He had eight years sobriety, and then he gave me quite a lecture that if you've gone to AA meetings for eight years and you can't sto stay sober without meetings, well, you just didn't listen. Well, that's, that was logical. That made sense, eight years. Hell, you could get a PhD in eight years. And, uh, well, you know that guy was drinking in three months? And I think maybe the, the, the flaw or the fallacy in his argument was that um, you can store up enough of this, that you can get enough and it's just going to do you. And it, it just doesn't seem to work that way. It's, it's something you do all the time. It's like taking a bath, I suppose. It works best if you take one every day. And uh, then there was another fellow who was a big help to me. It really was. And he, uh, he started drinking again for some reason. And I went over to see him in Pontiac, and we were driving around. And he, this guy had always talked a lot about spiritual things. So he told me that he was still following all of the program except the first step. That was the only part that he wasn't following. And, uh, but, you know, while he was telling me this, we were looking for his car. <laughs> he, he, had, he, he couldn't find his car, see? And then, then there was another fellow when I moved up to Jackson. He even had a ring for that. And he had a great job. Uh, they furnished a new Oldsmobile every year and, and, and so on. And things had really worked out for him as a result of getting an AA. And then one night we were leaving the meeting, and he turned to me and he said, I'm not going to meetings anymore this winter, as I've started bowling. And, and there was kind of a challenge in his voice, like, don't, don't even try to talk me out of this. This is what I'm going to do, and I know best, and so on. And Jackson is a fairly small town. The whole county is only 130,000. And, my gosh, I never saw that fellow again for 12 years, and when he came back, I don't know if he ever got sober or not, but the nice job was gone, and everything else was gone, and, and I think the fallacy there was not bowling. I believe a few bowlers can stay sober, uh, but what, what was wrong, I think, was that bowling and drinking were associated in his thinking. I believe that's what was wrong, and, uh, and I believe going back to bowling was a step towards going back to drinking. And the same kind of thing that I would do at, when I was drinking is I'd have a terrible bad patch and then go in the next day to a bar to have a Coke. The Coke was a step toward drink. I'd come out drunk, but I'd, I'd say I was going to have a Coke. Well, so somehow in his mind, why the bowling and drinking were together, I think. So we want to be careful about making moves of any kind that are a move towards, towards drinking, not getting too much in the old drinking environment. Uh, really, if we're on this program, the old drinking environment shouldn't have any appeal towards us at all, you know, when you hear what a, about what, what a bunch of drunks talk about in bars, it's just terrible, you know, that the fact that we ever did that and sat there and engaged in those foolish conversations, 
it makes me a little sick today, you know, that I, that I did something like that. Uh, well, I told him over at the grapevine this morning that, that I had known Bill uh, W. I'd heard him speak in 1951 when he was out. He was uh, barnstorming the country, promoting the third legacy, he called it. And that was the General Service Conference. And he got that started. And, but he, he was talking in major cities. And it was really very hard for me to get to that meeting, but I just had to meet or see Bill, but I didn't actually meet him. He gave this talk. It was a two-hour talk uh, broken by a, a cigarette break. Incidentally, cigarettes was always one of Bill's big problems. He never quit smoking until about a year and a half before he died, and the emphysema hit him bad. And I'm sure glad that we're starting to work on smoking quite a bit in AA. Not, uh, we're, we haven't become an anti-smoking grouper, but a lot of AAs now are giving up smoking. I gave it up 39 years ago. I think the program helped me. And uh, at age 74, I think if I were still smoking, well, uh, maybe I wouldn't be here. Maybe I'd be smoking now. <laughs> well, I hope, I hope I wind up in the other place. Uh, the, uh, and that was both Bill and Ebby. Both of them were heavy smokers. Ebby died of emphysema. Ebby was the man uh, who carried the message to Bill back in 1934 and then went back to drinking himself two, two and a half years later and had trouble most of his life off and on. Uh, but uh, he, he was a heavy smoker, too, as well as having a drinking problem. And the emphysema took him in 1966, and then five years later, it took Bill. But uh, I was always interested in Bill and his writings and that sort of thing. And finally, in 1956, I managed to go to Akron for Founders Day, where Bill was the speaker. And what I didn't know then, I found out later, was that the people out in Akron were, a lot of them had some hostility. Some of them had some hostility toward Bill. Uh, not all of them by any means, but there was a, a, an element, a group there that was kind of critical of Bill, and he kind of went out there to mend fences. That was part of his conciliatory nature. Uh, he tried to work things out with people in a very peaceful way. Uh, he was a peacemaker. That's one of the qualities I think Bill had. And so he was there in 56 and again in 58, but I did meet him briefly in 56, and then I corresponded. I wrote to him. He told me to write to him. And uh, he sent a long letter telling about all his troubles with depression, that he had suffered a lot for, with depression from about 1943 until 55. And, you know, I was kind of mad at Bill about that because I suffered from depression off and on, and he had no right to suffer from depression. He was the founder. He was supposed to have the answers to those things. And it just really shocked me that... Uh, but he was an honest man. And so that was part of his sharing... And he didn't like it that people put him on the pedestal. And you know that, that uh, slogan that he had, pass it on, and that eventually became the title of the book, Pass It On. Incidentally, I wanted to title that book Bill W. and His Friends because I thought that went along with the one of Dr. Bob, uh, Dr. Bob and the good old timers, Bill W. and His Friends. I thought the two of them kind of went together, but uh, they, they gave it the title, Pass It On, which was one of the last lines in the manuscript that I submitted. But that's what he would use with people. People would come in and fall all over him, tell him how grateful they were and all of that. And so he'd just tell them, pass it on. That's pass it on. You don't do anything for me. Just pass it on to someone else. And that's what's happened. And that's why we have, uh, what is it, 50,000 people, well, probably more. I guess these numbers on your badge are supposed to tell what the number, uh, how many are here. And I heard that there were over 50 or 60,000. 
so they'll know how many people are here. So it's it's been passed on very effectively, and I and I and we all of us just have a responsible ability to keep it going. I feel. Uh, now there was somebody in the back who was supposed to wave his hand when I only had five minutes, uh, but uh, oh, that's. Uh, but I don't see that, uh, so I'll keep on talking. And, uh, the uh, uh, well, anyway, after that, I would try to pin Bill down every time I I got down to New York. I'd try to slip in there to the general service offices and uh, talk to him. And I never really talked to him for more than fifteen or twenty minutes at a time. I think I made the guy nervous. I think all this idolatry, you know. When you admire somebody so much, that and he, and then he didn't feel that he was worthy of all this admiration, because I'd talk to him, and then pretty soon he'd stand up and say, "Well, it's certainly been nice talking with you, Mel." <laughs> and uh, but uh, he t he told me a number of things. For example, we talked about the Oxford group, and the Oxford group interested me very much. They were a spiritual fellowship. It had started with a man's spiritual experience, and. Uh, uh, I tried to learn more about it, and I asked him why we had, why AA had broken with the Oxford group. Bill had stopped attending Oxford group meetings in 1937, and in Akron they stopped in 1939. Uh, but uh, he told me the reason that they broke was, was, well, he says, for one thing, he said uh, Frank Buchman, the founder of the Oxford group, was getting in trouble with the Catholic Church, and he says that would have kept a lot of Irishmen out of AA. <laughs> and... Uh, the, uh, then uh, he, never, he never told me what the second reason was or anything like that, and I tried to piece that together later on in his correspondence and that sort of thing. Uh, then I got to know more about Bill later on from Lois, his wife, uh, his widow. In 1980, uh, Bob P., who, who spoke here yesterday, uh, some of you heard Bob Pearson give his talk, and uh, he hired me to work on the manuscript of, of, of Pass It On. The fellow who had started it, Niles, the fellow who had written uh, Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers, had gotten sick. In fact, he died a short time after that. And so Bob turned that over to me. And so I uh, interviewed Lois a number of times in person and on the phone. And I found out that she was a marvelous person, just a great person. When I went up to step, they lived in, a, in a Westchester County near a little town called Bedford Hills. It's in, up in a lovely section of New York. It's probably about 30 or 40 miles up from New York City. And uh, it was a house. It was just amazing how they had gotten that house, by the way. It was kind of a Dutch colonial type of house. In fact, it's probably the only one that looks like that that's ever been built. It uh, had a, the Dutch roof, you know, and everything. But the, the bedrooms downstairs were very small, probably about nine by nine. There were three of them, and then there was a real big one upstairs. And when they moved into it, it didn't even have a furnace. And uh, they had no money, and they'd been living from hand to mouth in 1941. And, but they had their furniture in storage. They still owned their furniture, and Lois even had a piano. Uh, and so this real estate woman thought she had found the perfect house for the Wilsons. And Bill said, well, we can't even look at it. We don't have any money. And she insisted that they look at it. And uh, I think she's probably a real estate woman like Kelly, who introduced me. And uh, Kelly's in real estate down in Florida, if you're planning to move there. And, uh, but she just insisted that they uh, look at it. So they went out and looked at this house. 
And this real estate woman worked it out so that they could get the house for $6,000 or 6500 maybe. That's what a good piece of property would go for in 1941. And uh, then $40 a month uh, for payments. Well, they were paying 20 to store their furniture, so all they had to do was come up with another 20 and they had a home. But it had no furnace. And then one day Bill was walking down the street in Bedford Hills and he passed a bar and there was a furnace sitting on the sidewalk and they were putting in oil heat. And so Bill bought the furnace from him for 15 or $20 and he got another drunk to help him install it. And that was their first centralized heating. But anyway, Lois lived there the rest of her life. And she, uh, I think she was 97 when she passed on, but she never left that house and uh, she was always a very gracious person to the people who came around. Uh, they had started out with just a couple of acres and then they bought some of the adjoining acres. I think they had about 10 acres. And she took me all over that property and showed me, she loved flowers and shrubs and all of that. And she'd point to the, this birch tree and say, well, Bill and I brought that down from Vermont. That's where Bill was from and that's where they had met. And then she'd say, I got this one here and that one there. And she, uh, you could see she was a true gardener and loved her flowers and shrubs and all of that. But what really impressed me when I went up there the first weekend I got there, there was a woman named Edna there. And Edna probably couldn't have weighed more than 80 pounds, and she obviously was sick, probably terminal with something. And uh, so uh, I thought she was probably an AA member or an Al-Anon and, and everything, and, but she was there the weekend, and we had nice conversations and everything. And then I learned on, on Monday, a, a man came in an old car to take Edna to a hospice. And what I learned was that Edna was a housekeeper, and she had been working for a family up there, and she had worked for Lois many years earlier in some way. And she was working for this family, and she got sick, and then had to go to the hospital. And then the hospital, for some reason, had to kick her out. I don't know why. And she was destitute. She had no money, no place to go, and this hospice couldn't take her for two or three weeks. And she couldn't think of anything to do. She called Lois. And Lois says, come on over, see, and took care of her for that two or three weeks. And that was Lois. See, you see, this was a fine person with a good heart, a lot of love for people. And, you know, that touched me so much. Well, it does right now, even thinking about it. So I'll switch to another subject where I can laugh. <laughs> uh, but um, I had found out a lot about Bill and Lois, their life together, the people they had known. And uh, they, they were married 53 years. And I suppose there were many scratchy times, but you know, we have to give Lois a lot of credit for the way this fellowship developed. Uh, she helped Bill get along. And at one time uh, I went up to see her and there was a young woman named Melanie who had lived in the Manchester, Vermont. And oh, there's the five minute sign, good. <laughs> and uh, anyway, Melanie had grown up in Manchester and she was an Al-Anon at the time. And uh, she, uh, was very much interested in Lois, and she had shown, this Melanie had shown me around Manchester when I went up there. And uh, so Melanie, what it turned out is when Bill and Lois first started courting, why a young man from uh, Ontario, a member of the richest, one of the richest families in Ontario, and Norman was his name, and he was crazy about Lois. And he wanted Lois to marry him. But instead, why she and Bill became engaged. So Melanie said, well, you know, in all those years, well, it turned out Norman was still living. He's 90 years old, and they still exchange Christmas cards and everything. 
and we were talking about Norman, and he was on the Member of Parliament in Ontario and everything. So you know, if, if Lois had married Norman, she wouldn't have gone through the crap that she went with with Bill. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, uh, so uh, 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 Melanie says, well, you know, when things were going real bad, I said, did you ever stop thinking about the road not taken, about what your life would have been like if you'd married Norman? And Lois said, never. It was always Bill Wilson. So there was a woman who loved Bill and stayed with him, hell in the high water, and kept him going. And that's, you know, part of why we have AA today. So those are all some fine experiences that I had. I'm very grateful for that. Most of all, I'm grateful for my sobriety. Uh, I told them that uh, about that article that Bill wrote when the guy first criticized AA. Our critics can be our benefactors. And I said that I had been married to a benefactor for 40 years. <laughs> and, uh, so they, uh, and, and I can tell you that it's been very good. A lot of times I get complimented on my attire. And I want you to know that this tie my wife picked out, she picked out the shirt. In fact, she picks out everything I wear. So uh, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. And I just wish all of you the best.